it's become impossible to talk about crime in this country without talking about race. And for many of us, it's also become really difficult to talk or think about race and racial tension without immediately jumping to the subject of crime. Now, I know that's a really bold statement to make, and it sounds a little accusatory, but stay with me for a second. During the first presidential debate between Republican nominee Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, moderator Lester Holt asked the candidates how they planned to heal the racial divide that's growing in America. Trump said this. Law and order. And we need law and order. If we don't have it, we're not going to have a country. And he went on to say this. We have gangs roaming the street. And in many cases, they're illegally here, illegal immigrants. And they have guns. And they shoot people. And we have to be very strong. And we have to be very vigilant. We have to, be, we have to know what we're doing. Right now, our police, in many cases, are afraid to do anything. We have to protect our inner cities because African-American communities are being decimated by crime. Which I guess is a decent answer if the question had been about crime, but it wasn't. In answer to a question about racial tension, Trump's lecture about law and order reflects a conflation that may seem off the cuff or forgivable. But what if I told you it's no accident that in America, race, ethnicity, politics, and crime have become so intermingled that it's difficult to separate them out or deal with them individually. And what if I told you that in the modern context, that intermingling has its roots in a horrific incident that happened not all that long ago? On this episode of Created Equal, we explore how the Attica prison uprising of 1971 was racialized by a governor and a president and became the basis for laws that incarcerated millions over the next four decades, yet never delivered the promise of safety for crime-ridden neighborhoods. I'm Laura Weber Davis. And I'm Stephen Henderson. From WDET in Detroit, this is Created Equal. In this country, our courts are the great levelers. And that the rights of every man are diminished, and the rights of one man are threatened. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We founded on the principle. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. There's no question that violent crime happens every day in big cities, and especially in places where black people live. We are both the perpetrators and victims of far more crime than anyone should have to endure here in America. And as a result, prisons reflect that narrative in our country. So black people make up about 13% of the total population in the United States, but they also make up about 40% of the overall prison population in America. They're also incarcerated at five times the rate of white people. But those lopsided statistics are not producing a simultaneous increase in safety. Removal of criminals has not removed crime. But there is still an intentional set of policies that was designed from the beginning to imprison people of color on a massive scale. 
I mean, this is a very, very dicey moment we're living in. That's Heather Ann Thompson. She's a professor of history at the University of Michigan and the author of a book called Blood in the Water, which is about the Attica prison uprising. Thompson says the modern era of mass incarceration is a direct consequence of how our government has a deep-seated suspicion of black people. And that begins with the end of slavery. The reaction to that in the South was to re-enslave them and, and, and retake power by the criminal justice system. Uh, the quickest way to get folks to work for you for free, because it's allowed under the Constitution, is to arrest them and criminalize them and imprison them. The, the, the next thing you can do is, of course, you can take away their right to vote when they're prisoners. Thompson says once the Civil War is over, prisons in the South fill up with black prisoners virtually overnight. And she says that history repeats itself in the 1960s as the civil rights movement gains momentum. So, yeah, history really matters to this discussion because you can do whatever you want to criminals and it's not coincidental that that happens primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to people of color uh, and African-Americans in particular. In modern politics, race, ethnicity, and crime become so intertwined that many politicians conflate any issue facing people of color with issues related to crime. So black people are associated with inner city crime. Muslims are called to police their neighborhoods for terrorists. And Latinos are called to account for illegal immigration. And that's not always an intentional dynamic. Even politicians who mean well or are forward-thinking often get swept up in that narrative of being tough on crime. Heather Ann Thompson says the prime example of modern policy pivoting to embrace that narrative lies with Nelson Rockefeller in 1971. So Nelson Rockefeller is the governor of New York, and he's a politician who enjoys a quite wonderful reputation, actually, in his state among many New Yorkers, both Republicans and Democrats. And that's because he, for many years, had had positioned himself as a liberal Republican, one willing to uh, consider drug treatment programs, one willing to uh, consider um, better housing options for the city. But By the time we get to Attica, he is a governor who's always been eager to win federal office. He wants to be the president. And it's pretty clear to him by 1971 that his party has moved dramatically rightward and that if he wants to have a political career as a Republican, he's going to need to draw a line in the sand. And Attica becomes that moment uh, when he decides to do that. Nearly 1,300 men, prisoners at the Attica State Correctional Facility, come together to protest uh, their abominable living conditions, um, ranging from uh, lack of food, being fed on 63 cents a day, to being mistreated medically, to not being allowed to practice their religion. They rebel, they stand together as one uh, for four days negotiating with the state, coming really close to a peaceful resolution of this. But the state of New York had a completely different plan, which was to retake this facility by force, by deadly force. 
And the result of this is that uh, 39 men are uh, shot to death by law enforcement, uh, prisoners and hostages alike, incidentally. And what is more, a full 128 people were shot so severely that, uh, you know, many six, seven bullet wounds maimed for life. And there's much that we need to think about uh, that comes out of this. The state of New York stood out instead of the side of the prison in the immediate aftermath and said the prisoners had killed the hostages, that all of this bloodshed was down to them. Now, never mind the fact that they didn't have any firearms and never mind the fact that these, uh, these lies were uh, quite quickly corrected by some pretty courageous men, including a local coroner. But that story went out on the front page of the New York Times, the LA Times, every AP paper uh, across the country. And Attica is that moment when people who had been sympathetic to prison reform, you just look at the polls and we were we were we were moving in that direction, they become furious. They start writing these pieces about prisoners are brutal, they're animals, they don't deserve human rights. Um, everybody in Attica deserves the death penalty. In a volcanic orgy of mayhem, arson, and hostage seizing. I have Governor Rockefeller for you, sir. There you are. Mr. President, I know you've had a hard day, but uh, I want you to know that I just back you to the hilt. And, I, I was and, and Attica provides sort of the the inspiration, I guess, for a real meeting of the minds between Rockefeller and Nixon, who before this point, I don't suspect are all that close, but the riot and the response to it really brings them together in a very disturbing way. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. You had to do it that way because if you would have granted amnesty in this case, it would have meant that you would have had prisons in an uproar all over this country. That's right. And you, you did the right thing. It's a tragedy that these poor fellows are shot, but uh, I just want you to know that's my view. Prior to Attica, uh, Rockefeller and Nixon were very clearly rivals. In a moment, we'll hear New York's Governor Nelson Rockefeller facing the Fourth Estate as Monitor joins today's edition of Meet the Press. In fact, it irritated uh, Rockefeller to no end that that Nixon, who was far less charismatic than he was, uh, less handsome, less personable, ends up capturing this voter uh, wave of resentment and conservatism that puts him in the White House. These are people who have nothing in common with Americanism. With us today is Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York. The Republican Party must repudiate these people. He created a storm in Republican circles across the country this week with the charge that Vice President Nixon has failed to tell the nation where he stands on the major issues of the 1960 campaign. Attica, though, is an interesting moment where he's able to then say to his party, and specifically to Nixon, uh, look, you know, we're on the same page. Um, and not only that, uh, I think probably Attica suggests I actually act Mr. Nixon, whereas uh, you just talk. Um, and it does bring them together. Uh, there's some incredibly interesting tapes where on the day of the retaking of Attica, which incidentally, um, you know, we need to know is is one of the bloodiest uh, moments in the 20th century. Um, you know, thousands of bullets shot into a very small space. Um, it is a massacre. It is a bloodbath. And you have the governor of New York, Rockefeller, calling Nixon and essentially um, 
you know, reveling in this retaking, being proud of it, and being congratulated on it by the president. About 1,200 prisoners by taking a uh, and putting down a gas attack from helicopters, uh, and then having sharpshooters on the walls, our own men. Uh, we were able to pick off either from the wall or as our men went in. Uh, the men who had the knives at the throat of the uh, hostages, and they did a fabulous job. Nixon has one question and one question only when he hears of this massacre at Attica, which is, is this a black business? Tell me this, is this a, are these primarily blacks that you're dealing with? This, there was, the whole thing was led by the blacks. Are all the prisoners that were killed blacks? Uh, I haven't got that report, but I have to, I would say just offhand, yes. And, you know, Rockefeller confirms that it is. Of course, it wasn't just, but he confirms that it was to the president. And the president and his men go on to talk about how, well, this is right on because it will have, as they, as they say, a salutary effect on any other possible black uprisings. And that use of force is then followed up by a spate of new laws, really, again, in Rockefeller's lap, primarily the Rockefeller drug laws that's going to move from direct force to uh, a policy mechanism to contain African Americans in new ways after the civil rights movement. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. Today, so many citizens have been so uh, beaten down by this long, now 30-year drug war that it's almost hard to imagine a time when, first of all, this wasn't the way it was, and secondarily, to imagine a moment that we can pinpoint where it actually begins. And um, while it is true that the actual war on crime apparatus begins before Rockefeller, before Attica in 1965 uh, in the John Johnson administration. When we get to Attica and then the Rockefeller drug laws, it's a whole new level of punitive. The following are the major initiatives that we must now take and that are essential to more fully meeting the people's needs in the years ahead. Prison reform, an expansion of state and local programs for combating narcotic addictions. The Rockefeller drug laws uh, take very, very minor possession, um, not just of hard drugs, but also of cannabis, and makes um, very little, four ounces, for example, uh, a a possible, first of all, an indefinite sentence of, say, 15 years to life, but could be 25 years to life. And it completely alters policing. It completely alters sentencing. It, It jams our prisons and our jails because it is adopted everywhere. And this idea that drug addiction, which, by the way, was most of the people who were pinched in these laws, would be something that would get you a life sentence, this was a whole new era, a whole new moment, and it destroyed communities. And that plays out everywhere. The argument goes that we need law and order to protect black people from the criminals. We need law and order to protect 
legal immigrants from illegal immigrants. While that is indeed a soundbite political platform that many people find themselves emotionally drawn to, it simply does not stand up to the historical record. We know from the record, from the studies, from the experiences of people that um, mass incarceration makes communities much less Less safe. safe. Heavy policing makes communities much less safe. And indeed, we also know exactly what makes them more safe. We know, or safer, we know that people with a, a higher education Uh, are much better off than people with no education. We know that people who don't go to bed hungry are much better off and create safer communities than people who are desperate and starving. We know that people who are addicted and get treatment are much better for their communities than people who are addicted, get criminalized, and come back still addicted uh, and also unemployable because they have a criminal justice record uh, and so forth. So this is not mysterious. It's not debatable. It is not a partisan question. It is a simple, factual question that we know the answer to. And so if we are really serious about public safety, we know that this journey we've been on for the last 45 years is literally the most disastrous thing we could have done for the public safety. We're we're doing the wrong thing, even if the goal were safer neighborhoods for black people or Hispanics or... Exactly. And and in fact, we have this conflation that somehow we locked everybody up and look, lo and behold, the crime rate is down. Well, you know, we, we have very, very serious scholarship on this that has actually looked at this question and finds out that no, they are disaggregated. And what is more, that in the neighborhoods that are most intensely incarcerated, uh, those places in Chicago and Baltimore and in Ferguson, they actually suffer far more violence. They endure less public safety. And so, Again, when you say black on black crime or black folks want the war on crime, I mean, it's just this ahistorical statement. Black folks don't start wanting more police in their neighborhoods until two things happen. One, the drug war has already completely overtaken neighborhoods. And two, there's nobody else to call but the police because we have completely decimated all other social service options. So you have a kid who is, you know, running wild and drug addicted and, you know, scaring other people in the neighborhood, you know, whereas you might have been able to call a social worker, you might have been able to deal with this before it gets out of hand. Now, call the cops. you got to call the cops. It is quite ahistorical to to level an entire shift in public policy on any one event. But that said, um, I think it's very clear to me that Attica plays uh, an indispensable, albeit completely unintentional, uh, role in ushering in one of the most punitive moments we've ever had in American history. Thanks to author and professor Heather Ann Thompson. What if there were social workers or teachers or community organizers who were available to vulnerable communities in the same way that police are ever present in those communities? I want to introduce you to someone, a man who may help us make sense of the senseless choices many young black men face in their surroundings. Today, Shaka Singor is a successful writer from Detroit. 
But when he was 14, he ran away from his difficult and abusive home. And when I ran away, I had no idea where I was going to go. This is Singor speaking at a storytelling event not long ago. And one day, this guy who grew up in the neighborhood, he come riding down the street, music blaring in his little ride. And he was like, man, you know, they told me you've been going through some things out here. Um, but I got an opportunity for you, a way you can make some money. So because he was homeless, Singor turned to selling crack. In the 1980s, the drug trade was becoming lucrative in cities like Detroit, and for a lot of people, it was the only way to survive. Singor was still a kid, and one day he found himself the easy target of a robbery by drug addicts. But I remember him grabbing me by my neck and pulling me behind this door, and all I could see was the darkness of these basement steps. And I just remember the smell of, of wild Irish rose, the, the stench of these festering sores he had on his head from shooting dope. And I just thought to myself, like he gonna shoot me in the head and kick me down these stairs and nobody's gonna find me until my body is rotten and stinking up the building. And fortunately, he was more concerned with getting high than he was with killing a 14-year-old. And so they let me go, and I just remember aimlessly walking through the neighborhood, and I stopped at this Coney Island. It was grown folks, and it was during school hours. And in my mind at that moment, all I wanted was somebody to rescue me. Somebody to ask, why weren't you in school right now? You know, but instead, they looked past me. I looked past them. You know, I called the guy I was selling drugs for, and I told him, I was like, dude, I just got robbed. And I was, I was afraid to tell him that I was afraid. Because in the hood, in the streets, you can't do that. Shaka Senghor went on to become a violent criminal. He killed a man and went to prison. He served his time, spending years in isolation, reading and writing. And he's now devoted his life outside of prison to healing and conflict resolution between young people. But imagine the life he could have led if on that day he walked into that diner and found the rescue from a life of crime that he was so desperately wanting. Perhaps he could have avoided prison. Maybe he would never have killed another man or had violent encounters with other young men left with the same desperate options on the streets. But we'll never know. And Shaka Senghor's story in many ways has a happier ending than those of most of the other people who go to prison. Stephen, I want to go back to Nelson Rockefeller for a moment. He's a really interesting character um, within the Republican Party and the history of the party because if you go back and listen to his speeches now, he sounds like a modern-day Democrat in many ways. But after he becomes more conservative and puts in place these Rockefeller drug laws— He's a hero. He's a hero. and he, <laughs> He's a rock star. <laughs> he is really rewarded by yeah. being given the very thing that Heather Ann Thompson is talking about, which is federal office. Yeah. Um, he ends up becoming the vice president under um, President Gerald Ford. Uh, so his party rewards him in many ways for that conservative turn that he makes. And we see that time and time again where politicians are rewarded for their punitive rhetoric, for their law and order delivery. Is that really then what the electorate wants? Well, I mean, part of the problem here is the comfort and the ease of that narrative that, as you point out, the electorate has. Tough on crime plays well. And so there is, in addition to the sort of substantive desire to deal with crime and keep people safe, there is this cynical sort of manipulation of 
people's racist uh, undertones or the racist undertones of people's thinking about these things that we see consistently throughout history. It's not just Nelson Rockefeller. So much about this for me is about shifting a narrative because what you're being fed as a consumer of news or information determines how you're going to feel about things. And and so there's a lot of emphasis that needs to be placed on how the media was covering the Attica prison riot sure. at the time, which really delivered this message that the state wanted, which this is a race riot. And once that message is delivered, it's really hard to unwrite that script because once the narrative is out there, it's really hard to take that well, message back. Well, and the problem is, of course, once the narrative is out there, it becomes part of the cultural understanding of of history and of, of an incident. So take somebody who is at that point in the early 70s, a small child who's maybe watching TV or listening to their parents talk about what's going on at Attica Prison, and they hear, well, this is about black people, black people being violent, black people being discontent. These are race riots, as opposed to these are people uh, being subjected to deplorable conditions, inhuman conditions, standing up and saying, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna take it anymore. But that small child doesn't hear that other message, hears that first message that this is about race, and it becomes true. It becomes the way that they remember and interpret those events going forward. How do you get somebody who has already come up with one narrative to at least understand the facts as they are on the ground? Maybe they aren't willing to look back at history, but maybe they are willing to look. Well, this is where you get to at least a little bit of good news, right, in this, in this narrative. Think of the discussions that are taking place now around the trouble with mass incarceration. Think of the people who are willing at the level of elected officials to think about different kinds of policies, sentencing reform uh, and things of that nature. All of a sudden, in the last, I would say, five or ten years, I think a lot of people have become aware that the things that we're doing, the way that we're addressing the, the, the question of safety is not keeping us safe and it is denying opportunity to an awful lot of people who uh, maybe have done something wrong but don't deserve uh, the, the, the really harsh consequences that the justice system puts onto them. One of the things that's gotten a lot of attention is what ought we be doing to make sure that uh, people's lives, people's productive lives don't end when they go into a prison that they start when they come out, that what, what is it we need to be doing when they're in prison to make sure that when they come home, there's something for them and there's a way for them to build a life. If you're interested in Shaka Senghor's life story, how an intelligent young man was swept up in crime, went to prison and emerged, you must check out WDET's podcast, Twisted Storytellers. You'll hear first-person narratives about incredible lives led by everyday people. It's hosted by a gifted storyteller you may recognize from the Moth Radio Hour, Satori Shakur. Twisted Storytellers is well worth your time. Check it out. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll talk about how tense moments in American history create shifts in art and culture. We had the war going on, we had the riot that had happened, and, and that's what everybody was writing about. 
Created Equal is a production of WDET in Detroit. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our producer is Jake Neer. Our engineer is Sam Bobian. The music of Created Equal is by Will Sessions. And thanks to Zach Rosen and Satori Shakur over at Twisted Storytellers. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for listening. WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.